Do you find yourself wishing you had more energy, healthier habits, or fun family activities? At the YMCA, you can find your passion, find family fun, and find your happy place, all while supporting your community. Join the Y in March with a $0 enrollment fee and enjoy motivating group exercise classes, heated pools, pickleball, and so much more. Visit YMCADC.org to learn more and to find your nearest Y in D.C., Maryland, or Virginia today. People are stupid. Live to tape. Welcome to Millennial Season 4, Episode 13. I'm Andrew. I'm Elisa. And I'm Laura. We are joined by a guest this week and actually a listener of the show, Zach. <gasps> Welcome. Hi, thank you. It is so nice to have you here. You, uh, yeah, Many of our listeners know you because you are pretty active in our Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Laura, why did we decide to have him on this week? Well, we wanted to have Zach on because we feel like he has a very unique perspective to offer in light of a lot of the news that's been going on recently, what with the Parkland shooting and then the recent March for Our Lives. Zach is an incredibly outspoken advocate for people living with mental health issues. Um, And he's someone who constantly inspires me because despite the fact that I'm nearly a decade his senior, um, he speaks so eloquently to these issues that it makes me, somebody who's almost 30, feel empowered to talk about my own struggles with depression and anxiety. So I thought he would be the perfect person to come on the show and talk about uh, our sort of cultural views of the intersection of mental health and gun violence and how that could actually be a more complex conversation than the one that we're actually having right now. Mm-hmm. Well said. That was, that was quite the compliment. Zach, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> I'm sort of just sitting here like, holy shit. Laura <laughs> 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 has uh, never said anything that nice about me. Well, no, me, me either. You have, y'all haven't earned it. <laughs> I know. I look. I agree. I can't wait to hear what Zach has to say now. How that old are you, so Zach? Sweet. By the way, I can't. Uh, I'm 21. Oh yeah. shit! <laughs> you're like, yeah. You're like Zach's like the person we're eventually going to pass the show on to one day. Like we're no longer going to be millennials, <laughs> so we have to like give it to our the the next gen. <laughs> He's the next gen. The next gen <laughs> millennial version 2.0. Yeah, <laughs> the better version. Anyway, Zach, where are you recording from tonight? Um, I'm in Alabama, um, a place called Tuscaloosa. Um, yeah, uh, the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Do you do, were you in school? Uh, I'm not in school. No, um, I <clears throat> work. Um, I struggle to find words all the time. Um, I try to, I mean, I try to keep up with things that I'm interested in. I really like to write. Um, and I'm really, really interested in, uh, making a difference in some way. It really bothers me every time I sit back and think, wow, I'm doing absolutely nothing that's helping anyone. And, um, that, yeah, stresses me out. But one thing that I have really focused on is mental health and awareness around it. And I feel like the stigma has kind of started to 
less than a little bit, but I, we have a really long way to go. Yeah, and we will be talking about that later in today's show. Were, were you born and raised in Alabama? Yeah, um, I was born in a small town, which uh very toxic. Um, and so when I graduated high school, we moved to this larger area. It's still, it's not that big, but, um, we have the university of Alabama here, which is a really, really big school. So, um, more opportunities here and more people to meet and interact with. I have to say, I adore your accent. (laughs) Yeah, it's super cute. It is really cute. It has oh, that I appreciate that. Very distinct southern drawl. It's like, I don't know, it sounds very sophisticated and, I don't know, gentlemanly. Oh, I really appreciate that because I, I'm always like, do I sound like a redneck? Do I sound no. like, do I sound, you know, kind of iffy? I feel like it's a mixture of um, southern and gay. So that's a pretty <laughs> good mix, I guess. You know, I have to say, I always thought the Southern accent got a bad rep. I think it's beautiful. I really do. I mean that. I kind of wish I had a Southern <laughs> yeah. accent. Well, you kind of do, but we've discussed that before. Okay. I'm with you, Lisa. <laughs> I actually, for a short time, was kind of dating somebody with with who, um, who grew up in Alabama, and he had a Southern accent. I was like, ooh. What, what what I like about Zach is he's never podcasted before, but he has a really good microphone. It sounds like, and that kind of thing turns me on. God, <laughs> I can I can just feel Andrew's erection from here. Oh, <laughs> oh my God! Don't reveal what's happening under this desk. Are, are you vaccinated, though, Zach? That's the important question. I am. I am. I'm totally oh, caught God. up. I'm completely vaccinated. Yes, okay. I'm hashtag blessed. Ha- have you ever experienced? The mica chair. Okay, what do you mean by experienced it? Sat in it? Um, yeah, put your tush in one. Uh, wow, have I? I feel like I have. It's not my preferred seating arrangement in a hotel room. It's nobody's. That's why it's just the mica chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's only mica's preferred seating. Yeah, yes. no, I, no. Okay. I, I've experienced it, but I don't live for it, no. That's, of course, a fair question. I just needed to ask you to uh, get you situated here in the Millennial Recording recording Studio. Anyway, it's good to have you here. Thank and you. Uh, feel free to chime in whenever you want. And then we'll talk about uh, you know, gun control and mental health later in today's program. Awesome. Well, before we move on to some news, I just wanted to give a huge shout out to my second home, Costa Rica. Uh, They had their presidential election yesterday, April 1st, and uh, it was effectively Costa Rica's version of the 2016 U.S. election. Um, They had two candidates who had the same last name, by the way, uh, Alvarado, and there was one of them who was a center-left candidate and also very pro-gay marriage, and another one who uh, was very evangelical, uh, did not approve of gay marriage, did not approve of gay rights, wanted to strip uh, women of reproductive rights, including making access to abortion, much more difficult. And even though women's rights was a pretty significant issue in this election, this election really served as a referendum on gay rights in Costa Rica. The reason for that is that 
Uh, Back in February, when the election first took place, there were a number of candidates who ran, including these two, and none of the candidates broke the 40% threshold that would have won them the election. So this election was actually a runoff between the top two performers in February. And what happened was right before the February election, um, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights ruled that signatory countries, which includes Costa Rica, uh, must legalize gay marriage. And uh, Fabrizio Alvarado was against this. He said that it completely violated Costa Rica's sovereignty, and he was not about it. On the other hand, the good Alvarado, Carlos, really was in favor of gay marriage and spoke openly about wanting to legalize it. So this came down for a lot of people to the topic of gay marriage and whether or not it should be legalized. And I am pleased to report that there was like a 20-point spread. Carlos won 61% of the vote, and uh, Fabrizio won about 39% of the vote. And I also wanted to point out, just to shame the United States a little further, average voter turnout in Costa Rica is 65%. And that's just average, like all their elections ever. I haven't been able to find an official turnout for this election yet, but my guess would be that it's going to be a little bit higher than this because this was a very contentious election. Up until yesterday, the polls were neck and neck. Nobody knew what was going to happen. This was actually a surprise victory. Um, Wow. Yeah. So this, I mean, and everyone, all of my friends down there were posting all over Facebook like it was 2016 in the U.S. I'm not even kidding. Like every post out of all of my friends was super political. And I was just so excited to see the amount of involvement and engagement that was happening surrounding this. And I just look at this and I see it as another case study for how countries that don't have mandatory voting can still have high voter turnout. Do you think the Trump election had anything to do with this turnout or the way this vote went at all? I don't know if I could speak to that from any kind of like real data standpoint. Anecdotally, all of my experiences with, with people that I know in Costa Rica is that they were horrified by us electing Trump. Yeah. And they were similarly horrified that there was roughly a 50% chance that they were going to elect their own conservative extremist. The fact that he was able to make it that far was pretty scary. I mean, I was in Costa Rica for their 2010 elections, and all of the the main candidates who had a shot were all fairly moderate. And in recent history, Costa Rica has also seen a swing towards non-establishment candidates. Um, this party that won is the C- Citizens Action Party, which prior to 2014 had never won an election in the country's history. Before that, it was always, almost always the National Liberation Party that won. Mm. Well, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Congratulations to Costa Rica. And uh, I'm sure fun seeing all your friends celebrating on the Facebooks. Yes. Also, LOL, both candidates being named Alvarado. Like, I know. No relation. America, America would not be able to handle that. Like 20% of the votes <laughs> would be accidental votes. Yeah, they'd be wrong. Right. I was worried about that yesterday. Actually, I was like, oh my God, what if people vote the wrong way? Yeah. But no, they're not They're not as stupid as us. So. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk a little 
bit of news here in America. The EPA, of course, under the Trump administration, is planning to roll back the Obama-era regulations on car manufacturers that would have required cars and trucks to average 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. That was what the Obama administration's EPA set uh, during his uh, time in the White House. It was an ambitious goal. It it may have been difficult for car manufacturers to hit, but it was a good goal. We want this because it would have allowed Americans to consume less fuel in their vehicles. In fact, less gas usage means less tailpipe emissions and therefore a lot less carbon dioxide being sent into the air. This was to help protect the climate. Carbon dioxide is a huge cause of the climate change that we've been seeing. It would have cut oil consumption by about 12 billion barrels and reduced carbon dioxide pollution by about 6 billion tons over the lifetime of all the cars affected by the regulations. The rollback hasn't been announced yet. It might be announced on Tuesday, April 3rd. But we so we still don't know exactly how far back these new regulations are going to be rolled. Maybe they're going to say, oh, uh, you only have to hit 35 miles per gallon by 2025 or something like that. This is really upsetting because, of course, this is a win for the car companies. They were feeling challenged by this, especially because more and more people have actually been wanting larger cars in recent years. Trucks, SUVs, crossovers, and bigger cars need more consumption. So this just bummed me out. Yeah. You know, it seems like a cop-out, though, because hybrid technology is not new, nor is it unique to any one manufacturer. Almost every major manufacturer has some kind of hybrid model car, and they even make those in the larger models. Like, I know Toyota makes their RAV4 as a hybrid now, and it may not have the same gas mileage. Like, I mean, the gas mileage on my car is 55 miles to the gallon. So it's amazing. it is possible. And I don't, it's not the challenge that it was 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is because government regulations have been continually pushing car manufacturers in that direction. I mean, what incentive does a car manufacturer have to, to do that other than regulations sort of forcing their hand? Of course, naturally over time, Miles per gallon will, you know, become more efficient because the consumer demands that. And so they have an incentive there. But that's not happening fast enough. It's not happening quick enough to address climate change. Or for that matter, the impact that rising gas costs have on middle-income families. If you look at middle-income and particularly, you know, underprivileged families, they can't afford to have a car most of the time, primarily because... Even if you can save up to purchase the vehicle, that doesn't necessarily mean you have the money day-to-day, week-to-week to to get in your car and drive when it costs you $50 every fucking time. So I think this is a real loss, not just for the environment, but for families and for Americans, because this just means we're going to keep paying more and more for gas, and we don't need to. Like Laura said, we've made huge strides And the manufacturers were already prepared to do this anyway. You know, 
This has this had been put in place. They have all been sitting around for years working towards this common goal. Why? What reason is there now to rescind that? They're, they've already made such great progress. Why Why not see that through? It, does it just have to do with the gas companies? Is it just that simple? The Trump uh, administration wants to appease them? Because that's really the only people that this benefits. It sure as hell doesn't benefit the consumer if they're not getting better miles per gallon in their cars. Right. It, it just frustrates me because A, climate change, and B, this is just a loss for Americans who want better cars. We can do it. Why not? I was also reading in this New York Times article that that 54 and a half mile per gallon threshold would have put us on the forefront in the world. Right. Right. In terms of uh, vehicle development and the miles per gallon. So that would have been good for us. That's great for us. That means that we have the ability to export technology and innovation, which is sort of what the United States is known for. And if we don't stay on the cutting edge of that, we lose... We lose the economic edge that we have globally, right? We have to keep exporting innovation for us to maintain our position in the world. Without that, like, what right. are we even doing here? So I think this is a real loss, but I also think that this is a real opportunity for car manufacturers to step up to the plate and say, you know what? I'm going to do this anyway. The government might not be making me anymore, but we were on this trajectory anyhow, and I'm going to see it through. And I want to believe that at least a couple of them will step up and say that because, one, it's true. They're on that trajectory anyway. And two, that is hugely positive PR for them. So I feel like that has to be what's on some of their minds, and I hope that that happens. Yeah. Zach, did you have something to say with cars? I thought you had some notes in her earlier. Um, yeah, I just, I weirdly pay attention to cars a lot and I see a lot of different trends with the fact being that crossovers are some of the most popular on the road now, like the Ford Escape. You see, you know, high-end crossovers, you know, the mid-range and then, you know, the cheaper models that people like to go to, which usually aren't even that much bigger than a sedan or whatever. But they still want that because, you know, it sits up a little bit higher and it might have, you know, a little bit more room. So crossovers have become really, really popular. And I feel like them rolling back these regulations really only makes sense for saving money and making more money. And it's ridiculous. And it's one of those things that there's really no reason for them to accept that they suck. Yeah, I have the Ford Escape, and I absolutely love it for that reason you mentioned, sitting up higher. Plus, it does give you more space. It's nice to be able to put down the back seats and suddenly have a lot more room to move some shit around. Like, I loaded up my car with tons of Ikea stuff, and I would not have been able to do that if I had a sedan. So just the comfort of having this flexibility is is really nice. And and setting up because I like driving. And that is exactly it. Like, it's flexible. It's yeah. kind of, it's a little bit smaller than an SUV, but it's bigger than cars. So it's why people are really going for it now. Yeah. That said, I do still do not like these bigger cars like the Expedition or the Hummers, even though they're a little smaller these days. What's your favorite car, Zach? Oh, shit. Um, 
when I say I pay attention to them, I mean it. Like, I can look and I'm like, okay, well, that's a Nissan Maxima. Oh, well, that's a Rogue. Like, I can really, really like, for some reason, I can really um, identify them. But I really like Mazdas. They're really sharp these days. They're just, they're sexy. Yeah. I want a Tesla, but they're too difficult to get. Yeah. Yeah. The Tesla is the dream, but I mean. Yeah. Expensive. Yeah. All right. Well, in some other car news, I also wanted to mention um, self-driving technology. It's been in the headlines this week because a pedestrian was killed by an Uber self-driving car. It is the first time that a pedestrian pedestrian has been killed by a self-driving car. Um, and after this occurred in Arizona, I believe it was, um, it came to light that Uber has actually been really struggling with making any progress with their technology. As of March, they were they were trying to meet a goal of 13 miles per intervention, meaning that the car would only need help from a human every 13 miles. They were nowhere near that. Um, meanwhile, other car companies that were developing this technology, like one called Waymo, they were averaging 5,600 miles between each time the driver had to intervene. So Uber was basically had gotten nowhere. And then one of their cars kills somebody. This is a very tragic story. Uber has had their self-driving testing privileges now suspended. They have also just suspended their own work. I guess they're just taking a break, maybe going back to the drawing board. But I just feel like, you know, this self-driving car stuff was a was a cool idea. We were all about it a couple of years ago. I know I was at least. Now I'm just over it. Like, what well, let's just keep drivers behind the wheel. Like, do we really need self-driving cars? I don't think so. I mean, I guess I'd want to ask in response to you, Andrew, how many Uber customers have been killed in car accidents where Uber drivers were controlling mm. the car? I mean, it's I feel like it becomes a slippery slope argument where it's like, well, yes, this technology can fail, but humans are far more subject to error. I'm also just looking at it as a it, it can it's going to kill jobs. If Uber has self-driving cars, they're not going to need drivers to take people around. Same thing with trucks. There's self-driving truck truck technology happening now. Then truckers aren't going to have jobs anymore. That's, true. That's definitely true, and that is a real concern. Um, but I think, once again, you can make that argument with any piece of technology. That's sort of That's sort of the conundrum right now with renewable energy is that renewable energy makes sense for so many damn reasons, including jobs now. But for a long period of time, it was that renewable energy seemed to be overtaking the energy market. And so people working in coal, for instance, were losing their jobs. So I think this sort of harkens back to the whole theory behind creative destruction which is this economic theory that in order to create something, you must first destroy something. Uh, and unfortunately, oftentimes, in order to create jobs, you must first destroy jobs. It would be scary being in a self-driving car. Like, yeah, I don't know if I would be comfortable with that at any point. No, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I like what car companies are doing right now, developing better technology to make cars safer, like lane assist or... My car can parallel park itself 
or some cars they can detect when they're coming out of the lane. So they'll kind of go back in or they'll automatically brake. like stuff like that, I think is great. And we should absolutely continue to invest in that type of development. But self-driving might be too far. And for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, it, it's kind of a it's a big race right now to see who can get the first self-driving car to market. Um, in addition to Uber, uh, Lyft has self-driving cars in development. Apple does as well. Google does. And the, and another thing is, this is going to be a state by state thing. Like maybe California will be the first ones out of the gate to be like, all right, self-driving cars are legal. Probably. But then what happens when you want to go to Vegas? Sorry, you got to leave your car at the border or I don't know, <laughs> drive it the rest of the way. <laughs> it's just. That's it's, fair. It's, I do think that's fair. I think that I think the fear factor is a legitimate point, because regardless of how we might personally feel. I do foresee a lot of folks being scared to get into one of these cars, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of folks will be. I mean, even I, I like to consider myself, you know, relatively technologically savvy. I would do it. I would get in the car, but I'd have to talk myself into it. It would be a a process, you know? Yeah. Zach, correct me if I'm wrong here. Teslas have self-driving technology that you can actually turn on. But when the Tesla starts to become unsure of the road, it like beeps and is like, please take control of the wheel. Uh, I guess about that. I know that you have to like every so often you have to take hold of the wheel. So it's like, Uh hey, you can't go to sleep. Like you need to be paying attention. (laughs) Hey, wake up. Wake up. Wake up. A lot of that kind of technology is in a lot of things. I mean, some cars, the you know, steering wheel will kind of vibrate if it feels like you're veering too much and tell you, hey, you should probably like stop and sleep, maybe get a cup of coffee or something. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I feel like they need to, we have a lot of advancement with safety features. They should start pushing that even further. And then they, you know, that'll kind of go in hand with self-driving cars. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be a major setback. Uh, this death but as laura you pointed out i think i think you're right it is these cars have so far been a lot safer so there is something good that's potentially coming out of this so we have a another study that i want to talk about this week because i just find these so fascinating this one was just published in the journal psychological reports and this study found that good-looking people are more likely to believe that life is fair. Now, these were actually two separate studies that were done for redundancy purposes. Both studies were conducted across various college campuses, and in each study, about 395 college students participated. The researchers found, based off of both studies, that people were more people who were more physically attractive, rather, were more likely to agree with statements such as, quote, I feel that people get what they're entitled to have, and, quote, I feel that people who are met with misfortune have brought it on themselves. This yes. Was, <laughs> this was true both when the participants rated their own levels of attractiveness and when their attractiveness was rated by other participants and their peers. Um. 
One of the big takeaways, this is a quote directly from the study, quote, our personal beliefs and values are often simply a reflection of the stimuli that we've been exposed to rather than representations of well-thought-out positions. In the case of this study, our conceptualization of justice may simply reflect our own privilege. And I thought I thought this was fascinating and not really that surprising. I can understand the correlation and why that might be true. You know, the hotter you are, the more you think that life is fair. Because there's been a lot of other studies and psychological reports that say the hotter you are, the easier life is for you. People tend to just be nicer to you. It's easier for you to get jobs. That's been proven time and time again. Um, it's easier for you to find a partner, a mate, obviously, life just tends to be easier. So I can understand why if you're attractive, you might think that. Conversely, if you are conventionally, society says, unattractive, it would have the opposite effect. What I did find interesting too, though, was that the authors noted that their conclusion appeared to work in both directions, meaning that people who are privileged, i.e. in this particular case, people who are attractive, tend to have a gilded perspective of society where everything is fair and just and right. And that's not necessarily accurate, of course. Those who are extremely underprivileged or, in this case, very unattractive, have a too jaded view of society and think that everything is just very, they themselves are very cynical and they think that everything is very unfair. And that might also not be right. The truth, of course, is probably somewhere in the middle. But that regardless... How you look determines how you think. Do you guys agree with this? It makes sense, I think, to an extent. I'd be curious to read this a little bit further and see what some of their qualifiers were. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that occurred to me as well was wondering if race is a factor that is taken into consideration here. Um, because unfortunately, there have been studies done that show that like on online dating sites, black women tend to be the least desirable amongst like the pool of people on those online dating sites. Like they just tend to be sought out less. And of course that's not because black women are unattractive. It's because of societal biases against them. So I do wonder like, how many of the participants in this study were people of color and to what extent did that inform their peers' perceptions of how attractive they were versus how attractive they found themselves? Because that that also opens up like a whole other line right. of perception. So And also how attractive they feel about themselves because unfortunately mm-hmm. society's standard of attractive equaling oftentimes attractive equaling, you know, being fair-skinned does have an impact on how you see yourself. So one of the studies, I mentioned there were two studies. One was when they rated themselves and the other was when others rated them. And the results were consistent across both, almost down to like the exact Z-score. So that was really fascinating to me. But that doesn't, that actually validates Laura's point, which is that the way society tells you how you should feel about your level of attractiveness. I don't know how they measured that in this. I really don't. And I would also say that all of the participants were college students. I'd be interested to see if 
this same conclusion held across a wider audience and a larger sample size. I mean, to me, to me, just not as a scientist, but just as like a person reading this, it makes sense to me. The conclusions resonate with me, but that doesn't mean you, we don't have questions, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that I makes would, sense. I would think that as you grow older, you become more confident in your looks. And at the same time, a lot of people just get better with age. Oh, he he leveled up, man. Or like, you know, oh, well, look at me back in middle school or high school. I looked like such a dweeb. Like a lot of us age well. So I would say to your question about if older people would feel the same way, I feel like more people would become more confident in their looks or just growing up, you become more secure because you get into relationships maybe or just you get out of the bullying of high school and college, mainly high school and middle school. And uh, yeah, you just feel better about yourself. Well, and I think also at that age, a lot of people are in the prime years of their attractiveness, right? So, I mean, that, that, that could, I mean, that could have something to do with it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think it makes sense. I think that your perceptions of how you see yourself often, not even just with your looks, but just in terms of how you're treated at work and how much money you make and how much you see your social value being worth, like all of these things inform how you view fairness. So my my biggest concern with this study is that if this holds true in any meaningful sense, I must be ugly as sin because I don't <laughs> think that life is fair, actually. <laughs> and I mean, I take kind of a global perspective on this, but when I look at the world and how much suffering that there is, and granted, it's gotten a lot better. I'm not one of those doomsday folks, but you know, when I look at when I when I read about you know, Syria and all of the families and children who are dying and suffering, I, I that's where my mind goes. And there's nothing about that that is fair or just. I, I don't know. No, I, I agree with you, especially when on the other side of the world, there are children born into incredibly privileged homes where they will never want for anything and oftentimes will not be forced to work particularly hard to win in life. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. But Elisa, you're one of those people who has aged up, in my opinion. Yeah. You're like a fine wine. You've gotten better with age. Absolutely. So I hope you are confident and believe that life is fair. <laughs> now I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you. you were a dweeb a few years ago, but... Yeah, I appreciate now, that. I mean, I think what you said before is true, though. I, I certainly feel a lot more confident now than I did 10 years ago. I do, too. No question. Yeah. Yeah, like you you, you get away from the bullying, like I said, and you settle into a life where hopefully you feel more confident about yourself, maybe thanks to a job or relationship. Right. Accomplishing things in life, having a child. Zach, does this ring true for you at all? Do you? How do you feel about this study? I feel like it's pretty accurate. I uh, I've been looking at the quote. I feel that people who are met with misfortune have brought on themselves. Been looking at the that the entire time. It just <laughs> sounds like these 
the things that they agree with sound terrible to me. That could just be me. I don't know. But, um, I, yeah, it, it sounds pretty accurate to me. Yeah. But I also feel like as you get older, you both have less time to care and you also just don't care. So you don't really look at that as much, but I don't know. No, I do think I do think that the fact this was all done on college campuses is definitely yeah. some kind of a bias yeah. in the study for sure. You know, one reason I feel more confident. <laughs> BioClarity. They are actually this week's sponsor. They are a daily skincare routine that Laura and I have been using and absolutely loving. Why BioClarity? It's easy on the skin. BioClarity delivers glowing, clear skin by reducing redness and boosting your natural beauty. You can use it twice daily without worrying about excess irritation, and there's no harsh chemicals. We've both both been using it for a while now, and I personally have been loving how effective it is at taking care of my pizza face. I use it at night before bed, and I wake up to a repaired face. And I gotta say, it really came in, came in and saved my ass a few weeks ago. Um, my skin was perfect when I was in New York. I almost didn't want to put it on at night because I was like, that's it. My skin's repaired. I'm done. I don't <laughs> my my 10 year acne battle is over, mm. <laughs> but I kept it up because it would absolutely come back. Um, so thanks to BioClarity. I was looking good for Bruce and Verana and Elsa and Olaf. Everybody was happy with my face. No pizza face insults here. Everybody was happy with my face. <laughs> so, Andrew, Olaf. I have to ask you, uh, what were your feelings about fairness before and after using BioClarity? <laughs> well, I mean, legit, like I, acne has always been a struggle for me. So in that regard, yes, I have found life unfair. <laughs> why? <laughs> why do other people not have to deal with this horse shit? This pepperoni face. It's like I slept in a bowl of pizza sauce every night. That's how red my face can be sometimes. I'm just like, why? I already know my boyfriend's going to text me and be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I was about to text you that. (laughs) But really, I mean, that's why when you're dealing with acne for so long, that's that's just how you feel. It's like, will this ever go away? I also just wanted to mention one other side product that BioClarity recently introduced. They call it a skin smoothie. It's 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 something called Hydrate, and it's a lightweight, breathable moisturizer designed for even the most sensitive skin. This is great stuff. When your face is feeling dry, I just throw a little bit of it on, and I'm good for the day. And you can use it alone or with the BioClarity system. I want you to start a healthy habit and get glowing, clear skin. Just go to BioClarity.com. Our listeners will get their first month for only $9.95 plus free shipping. That's a $20 savings, and it comes with a 100% risk-free money-back guarantee. But you need to enter our code MIL. That's bioclarity.com, and enter our code MIL. Mill for you'll look like a million bucks. (laughs) (laughs) So we wanted to have Zach on to continue our ongoing discussions about... um, gun violence that we're seeing here in the U.S., but we wanted to have him on to get this perspective about how mental health 
fits into the picture here because we constantly hear public officials throwing around this term, it's a mental health problem, it's a conscience problem, it's a crazy people problem. Um, so we just hear a range of, uh, of, of connotations surrounding mental health and how it relates to gun violence. And Zach has some pretty strong opinions about this. So we wanted to get his perspective. Um, Zach, I guess I'll start with you by asking what anti-gun control arguments have rankled you the most. Seeing the leaders in our country, especially the Republican ones, starting to just spew out like, oh, mental health. Like This is a mental health issue. This is, you know, this isn't a gun problem. It's a mental health issue. Um, that was the main thing that, you know, started this whole thing with me going down a hole of research because it really just pissed me off mostly because they don't even, they probably, they definitely don't understand most of what they're talking about. They don't understand what they're talking about when they say mental health, when they say mental illness. And I think it also kind of uses, you know, it, it paints a broad brush it's so ridiculous to say that when there are so many different things that people deal with, there are so many different issues in this country to just try and push it all on mental health. It's not correct, especially when, you know, as I found uh, some of these mass shooters had no confirmed histories of mental health issues. Obviously they had issues, but it's not necessarily something that we can put a label on. Right. Totally agreed. Like what kind of so what kind of shoot what shooters or are you are you referencing? Um, so I kind of looked into some of the biggest ones we've had, and I don't necessarily want to um throw their names out too much, sure. just because I don't think they deserve it. But so uh, the Vegas shooter, right. Stephen Paddock, I read articles and articles, and I have all of them saved on these people. He had no confirmed or known mental health issues besides his primary care physician thought that he might be bipolar. But that was just sort of a, you know, it could be, but we aren't sure. The Pulse shooter, no mental health issues whatsoever. Uh, There were some, like, conflicting reports from people who knew him that he might have had, like, a violent streak or that he was quiet. But no one said, you know, the same things over and over. Um, he was looked into twice by the FBI, but maintained a clear, like a completely clean record, and was allowed to buy two weapons, one being an assault-style semi-automatic rifle, and he was also allowed to have a concealed carry license. And so Sandy Hook, moving on to Adam Lanza, he did suffer from mental illnesses. He had OCD, anxiety, and they also found... Um, after his death, they found that he was probably also anorexic. So he had, you know, issues in his life and he was checked out for them. But his parents decided, no, we're not going to treat it. We're going to just sort of accommodate his problems. So they kind of, in a lot of ways, just ignored that part of him. Parkland, the most recent, He had issues. He had an adoptive mother who actually died last year, the end of last year. She said that he had ADHD, depression, and autism. There were some hints that there was some kind of medical neglect, 
But his clinician, you know, stated he always had his medication. He never missed any of his appointments. He was taken to the hospital back in 2016 after posting video of himself um, harming himself and saying that he wanted to buy a gun. He was taken to the hospital and released, even though he had been doing all that. He had hate speech uh, written on his backpack. So there were tons of signs. And also, he was reported to the FBI twice. The first time they looked into it, couldn't really find anything concrete, and so there wasn't really much they could do. The second time he was reported to the FBI was less than six weeks before the Parkland shooting, and absolutely nothing was done about it. They didn't look into it at all. So what I found with looking at you know, these instances was the fact that a lot of was a lot of it was from neglect, neglect from the people around these shooters and also from the government itself. It was really one of the biggest issues was neglect. Mm. And I think that you're right. Your earlier point that we can't be painting mental health with such a broad brush is so true because Mental health can mean any number of dozens upon dozens of things. And I think very often when folks use mental health as a scapegoat in the gun control debate, they're referencing folks who have really, really severe debilitating mental health issues and who, to your point, have been neglected. Um, But that discounts the millions of Americans who live with mental health issues every single day. And it's, and it's, it's, I'm sure a struggle, but not debilitating and not severe and they're fine and they're normal fucking members of society. I mean, you know, anxiety is, is a big one that a lot of folks struggle with and there's nothing wrong with that. And that doesn't make you violent. And I think so that your point about we can't be painting this issue with such, such a broad brush and talking about mental health as though it's just one singular thing is really, really important. Yeah, there are so many layers to it from people who, you know, do have to, you know, are usually institutionalized because, you know, they can't help it to people who manage without medication to people who have to take medication daily. There are so many different things in this world of mental health that people who don't really suffer from it, they don't really always understand it. I've been suffering from this for uh, the main stuff that I've been suffering from for about three years now. Um, I take medication every day. I work on myself. I have a counselor as well as a psychiatrist. And, you know, I've seen a lot of issues within our government with that as well, from a lot of issues with insurance to people not being able to access that, to myself having to go through different things to get the care that I actually need. Because otherwise, some pretty bad things could happen in my life and to me. Let me ask you about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Is your counseling, is your therapy, is it covered by healthcare? It is, yes. Since I am 21, I am still on my parents' insurance. And my dad has pretty good insurance. So luckily, um, I am covered. So I have, you know, I'm able to get the medication I need and the help I need. That Where he works also has sort of 
the separate part. Um, it's called behavioral health. And so they can actually kind of decide if, like, how often I can see my counselor. For a while, I was I would be like, okay, you have 10 sessions. Once you get through that, uh, my counselor would have to rewrite and s- her her care plan for me uh, and say, you know, what my needs were, send it off and get it okay so that I could keep seeing her. Um, and I actually, um, a little over a year ago was actually, well, I, I went to the hospital myself and decided to go in myself because I no longer felt safe. And while I was in there, I talked to people who were kind of liaisons between me and my insurance. And I was in there for a week. Um, I think at most I could have been in there a week and a half. And I, that's how much my insurance was going to cover. Uh, they weren't going to cover anything else. So there's a lot of different issues with that. And it keeps people from getting the help that they need. Um, my sister takes anxiety medication. Hopefully she'll hear that. And she'll be like, oh, I wish he hadn't have said that. <laughs> but uh, she was she had to go through a lot of crap signing up for Obamacare. Because, you know, she takes medication and she wouldn't have been able to afford it without it. Right. First of all, I want to say kudos to you for getting that help. Because a lot of folks feel, um, I don't know, like embarrassed or too nervous to do it. I suppose. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm proud of you for, for doing that. And I want to ask, I mean, I think I, I can tell just through your answers so far, but I would like to hear you say it so that others who may be struggling hear you say it. Has the help helped? Has it made a difference for you? Yes. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Um, I also want to just straight up say I suffer from severe depression um, I have anxiety, and also I just recently learned that I also have ADHD, and so that's kind of a pretty rough cycle for mm. me, and I'm having I'm having to figure that out. Yeah, but yeah, the help has 100% helped me. Good. Um, psychiatrists often tend to kind of be um, more like a doctor; they are there to treat your symptoms, not really for you to, you know, get in deep with. That's why I have a counselor and a psychiatrist. And yeah. I actually, and my psychiatrist currently is a nurse practitioner. And so if she needs to write me a prescription for something that's, you know, uh, a controlled substance or whatever, um, she actually has to get him to sign it. And then they have to mail that to me. So, but her background is in nursing. So she's more relaxed, but a lot of psychiatrists can come off as doctors. Um, I've been, I've been through, I think three psychiatrists. I've had my same counselor for about three years now. So it does kind of take time to uh, figure out a good fit for you. Yeah. And it can especially be difficult because in my area, there aren't many. I actually have to drive um, a little over an hour to see my uh, psychiatrist when I see her because we don't have many resources around here. And I'm lucky that I have my counselor because she's not even able to take any more patients because there are just so many. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings me to the point of bringing up that mental health is just a scapegoat here because the people who are using mental health as an excuse for why it's not the gun's fault. It's actually just like the mentally, the quote, mentally ill people's fault. 
is that they don't want to do anything to expand those services or make them more readily available or easier to access. Um, Furthermore, the only people, there's only like a certain segment of the population who gets the benefit of being labeled, you know, criminally insane as some might call it. If you're, if you're not the right skin color and you perpetrate a mass shooting, you're a terrorist or, or a thug. When really, mm-hmm. they're all terrorists. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but if you're if you're white, then it's just oh, it's a poor kid that's been mentally ill. Right. Exactly. And right. it's like no, they're terrorists too. <laughs> like, and he was nice up until you know he murdered like fifteen people. We didn't even know. Yeah. Right. And what I love yeah. about the Parkland teens is that they are not letting that excuse be used. They're like, fuck no, this kid has been problematic since middle school. Yeah. I think there's an important point to be made here too, Zach. I mean, about correlation not equaling causation. So I think that a lot of folks who would point to mental illness as being the problem would point to some of the shooters who who may have had mental health issues, and and they might point to them and say, "Oh, look, this is why this happened." Um, but just correlation is not equal causation. Just because you have you know a, a handful of of violent folks who happen to have mental health issues does not mean that the reason they were violent were because of the mental health issues. I have, I'm sure in some rare cases that is true, but that doesn't mean that that's widely applicable. And yeah. as we were talking about before, how many millions of tens of millions of people could, you could say have mental health issues and how many of them ever commit any kind of crime, violent or otherwise, I would be really curious to see the statistics on that, but I have to imagine knowing so many folks who struggle with mental health that it's got to be extremely low number. Yeah. And also, you know, the point of, you know, what Laura said about not wanting to expand those things, they're actually cutting down on it. Uh, Trump's new Medicaid plan plans a cut of over a trillion dollars to over a course of like, 10 years and so they also want to kind of shove it off on the states oh like you know you guys can sort of figure this out you guys can figure out what you're going to fund but then they have to figure out well what are we going to cover are we going to cover mental health are we going to cover you know substance abusers are we going to cover you know women uh who in low-income areas who get pregnant and we have we need to help care for them. They have to divide that up and that's all really really important things. But yet if you have this l- small amount of money, you can't cover it all. And so they continue to cut and cut and cut yet they want to point fingers and say, "Well, no, it's a mental health issue. We need to work on that first when actuality you're just cutting more and more funding, and so that's not going to help. Right. If they really believed that it was a mental health issue, then they might be putting the money where their mouth is. Yeah. But they don't. I actually saw a video of Trump talking about the old days when we had, like, mental institutions, like, asylums. And I was like... Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Which, first of all, I hate watching any video of him at all. Because anytime I see him actually as a president, it makes me very, very sad. Because I kind of have that disconnection where I almost don't realize it a lot of the time. Um, but 
he talked about, you know, the Parkland shooter was, you know, mentally disturbed. We should bring back mental institutions. And he talked about how, you know, the friends and neighbors of him knew. And I saw where people talked about how, well, they really didn't know. He kind of seemed normal to some people, whereas other people knew. And he also said that, you know, you should you should always report these things, always report. Well, people did. The FBI got a tip about him and they did nothing. So don't try to shove this off on other people. Don't say, you know, oh, it's this person's fault. It's this person's fault. Tackle the issue at hand and deal with it. Right. I see here in your notes, I wanted to touch on this because I think it's important that, you know, those suffering with a with mental health issues are far more likely to hurt themselves than someone else. And that we can't lose sight of that. The conversation around mental health should be one of of compassion and caring and and understanding that if someone is struggling with a severe mental health issue, we should care about them doing something to themselves or harming themselves in some way. It shouldn't be instant judgment and ridicule and fear. It should be compassion and understanding of that fact. Yes. Much more likely to harm themselves than someone else. I think those two things do not go hand in hand. And I think people still just don't fully understand mental illness. They don't. And especially, I mean, it's difficult to understand when you haven't dealt with it. I've experienced that firsthand from people who just don't really understand why I can't you know, do certain things, why things affect me in certain ways. They just don't get it. You know, I I can, you know, break down and, you know, cry over the Parkland shooting and people will say, well, what, don't look at it. Don't, don't watch stuff on it. And it's not that I'm sitting there and watching stuff on it. It's the fact that I can think about that and it affects me. And so people, you know, with mental illnesses, they aren't really as people just like everyone else. It's not like we are completely different. I mean, so many people experience mental illnesses. One in five adults in any given year are treated for some, any kind of mental illness. That's a pretty large amount of people. Like, it's really, really ridiculous. Over 50% of children, 8 to 15, Uh, received mental health services in the previous year. So it really starts at a very young age and just keeps going up. No one is exempt from uh, forming these issues and having things build up inside them. But just because that happens doesn't mean that they are going to become violent and attack other people. Exactly. Right. If that were the case, we would have a significant violence problem. Yeah. And I mean, overall, even though things like mass shootings are up overall, our violence is down. Yeah. So that doesn't quite stack up with the narrative they're trying to pass. Yeah. And, you know, and also, you know, they're, they're trying to change Medicaid and they're trying to change all of this when Medicaid and Medicare, they're the largest payers of behavioral health services in the country, which kind of goes 
with mental health. Over 12 million people on Medicaid are treated for mental illnesses and substance abuse. So when you cut that by over a trillion dollars over 10 years, you're affecting a lot of people in this country, and that only makes the problem worse. As somebody, I I hate to separate the three of us from you, Zach, but as somebody who's younger and closer to the Parkland teens in terms of age, do you believe that they are going, that the Parkland teens and beyond are going to make a big impact on gun control? And and where do you see it going from here? Uh, I think the Parkland teens are going to do a lot because not only are they speaking out against their own issues, but so often they turn the conversation around when they know that they are getting more attention than others. People have talked about so often how, you know, the black lives matter crowd. Um, all of us, you know, we talk about, um, you know, black teens have been talking, have been speaking out against this for such a long time. That, you know, there's a gun problem, that there's this, there's that, but nobody listened to them. But now, you know, these Parkland teens are speaking out and everyone's jumping on board. And the Parkland teens have kind of pointed to that to say, hey, don't just listen to us. There are so many other issues. There's so many issues with race in this country. It's ridiculous. We need to help everyone. The Parkland teens also, like, they... I guess they kind of grew up online and so they know how to <laughs> how to come back at people. They really yeah. aren't going to sit and take anything. They will I mean, they basically destroyed Marco Rubio. I feel like <laughs> it was so delicious. We're seeing now that's the ghost of Marco Rubio that isn't Marco Rubio. <laughs> so I feel like yeah, they're going to make a lot of change and they're growing up and you know, they're going to take over one day. And yeah. there's going to be nothing anyone else can do. And I will probably just sit back and be like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. I don't know. I don't know. Just just get rid of those guns. Make mental health a bigger priority. Yeah. I do. Um, You bring up a good point about the teens being able to kind of take over the Internet. Like everyone's very social media savvy, even though teens reportedly don't use Facebook as much as like Snapchat or Instagram. They do now know how to harness it and how to spread a message. Yeah. Probably better than the adults do. So in terms of getting a message out and being loud, they're going to be able to be loud thanks to social media. Yeah. And things can so easily go viral now that it really just doesn't take much for information to spread, which can also cause problems. But I think it's it's helped in some ways as well. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Anything Zach. Anything else to say here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, keep fighting the good fight, and we're glad to hear you're doing better. Thank you. Let's move on now to AP Choice. We have a few submissions here from our associate producer patrons over at patreon.com slash millennial. Jess kind of has a uh, miscellaneous question. She asks us, what's something new you learned this week? A favorite fun fact, maybe? My problem is that I learn things and then I immediately forget them. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. you learn something new every day. 
And then I also forget those new things every day. You learn something new every day because you forget what you learned yesterday. <laughs> it's true. I I recently learned something that horrified me, and it's that spiders have paws. Ew. Like, oh. Excuse me? No, like like dog paws. Like they look like puppy paws. No. And like I saw these close-up pictures of them. They're basically like arachnid puppies. And it may, I automatically had these horrible like Vietnam flashbacks of every time I've ever stomped on a spider. And I, I felt terrible. I'm sorry. I think that's adorable. I'm going to still avoid them at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a bit of a road trip right now. I'm in New Jersey right now and I'm going down to uh, Virginia Beach tomorrow. And while Google mapping, I learned that there's this tunnel that goes from the southern tip, very southern tip of Maryland, to the northeast corner of Virginia. And it's a tunnel that goes underwater through the fucking Atlantic Ocean, basically. I mean, it's it's in between the Atlantic Ocean and like the Chesapeake Bay or whatever that is. That's kind of crazy. And it's like... 12 miles or so it's not all underwater some of it what it'll do is it'll be above water and then it dips underwater and turns into a tunnel so that way boats can get over top of it i thought that was cool it's like the channel yes that's cool have any of you been in a channel no no (laughs) i guess there's only one channel isn't there the channel i'm referring to one that connects like england and uh france I think so, too. I'm going to get some great Snapchats. <laughs> Priorities. Ahead, Why Snapchats? They just go away. Well, uh, I recently learned that um, looking at some upcoming travel, and I recently learned that it's illegal to own just one guinea pig in Switzerland because apparently guinea pigs are notoriously... Like, I don't know, they need a mate or they get lonely or whatever. And you, if you have to, ha- if you have a guinea pig for a pet, you have to have more than one. This also applies to some other animals. Was well. there a reason you were looking into guinea pig laws? What? Was there a reason you were looking into guinea pig laws? No, I just, I know. Looking up, like, I was looking up stuff about Switzerland, and this is one of the things that popped up. Yeah. Um, and this is not something I've learned recently, but I did read in the New York Times uh, a long time ago, years ago, that apparently before the invention of color television, the majority of people said that they dreamed in black and white. Yeah, this is I, I'm skeptical of that because I have to believe that there were dreams long before television, period. So I don't know why anyone would be dreaming in black and white, but this is, I want to have to find the New York Times article and make sure I'm not just lying to you guys, but this is a fun fact. I think, I think I dream in color sometimes. Well, yeah, now the, the, what I read was that now people dream in color, but then when television was first invented and it was in black and white, that most Americans dreamed in black and white huh. because they were sort of, their brains were mimicking what they were seeing on television. 
Uh, now that television's in color, we all dream in color again. I see. Yeah. That's really weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just found Any it. Any more mo- revelations recently? Um, I I was trying to look it up to see exactly how realistic it was. I don't know. But I once was Googling, you know, if it was legal to own a giraffe for, you know, various reasons, as you do. And um, I believe there may, this may be fake. I don't know. This may be fake news and alternative fact. But you can own a giraffe in Georgia as long as you don't tie it to a pole. I have heard okay. something along those lines. We have a lot of really weird exotic animal laws here in Georgia as evidenced by the fact that I have legitimately had neighbors who had exotic animals for pets. Like there's this dude who lives down the road from my parents who has like llamas and alpacas. Oh my God. It's weird as shit. I know there's another law where you can't have a cow in a bathtub. That's a thing. That's valid. Well, yeah, don't bathe that thing. Why should it smell nice? (laughs) Don't bring it inside. Then we got another AP choice here. This is from Jared. Did any of you play the Dark Souls series? If so, are you excited for Dark Souls Remastered? How do you feel about remastered games in general? Do you feel they are just companies trying to squeeze a little more money out of fans of that particular franchise or an attempt to keep a fandom alive in a time of current-gen consoles? I've not played Dark Souls, and I am not excited for it to come out because I know that once it does, there's going to be so much hype, I'm going to feel like I have to. Dark Souls is notoriously difficult, like rage-inducing difficult. Um, I've watched a lot of Let's Plays and and uh, watched a lot of even my friends play it. It's fucking hard. Uh, so I haven't gotten into it, but I know. And th- that's honestly, that's the reason I haven't gotten into it, because I'm like, kind of terrified of it. <laughs> um, have you played, Zach? It sounds like you have. No, I just know that it's really, really difficult. Oh, okay. And I don't have that same issue. Of if I see if it gets really popular and people talk about it, I won't have to play it because I prefer to not play really stressful video games. <laughs> Fair. Um, the second part of the question: remastered games. I think it depends largely on it depends largely on the game. Some a lot of times lately, especially with like EA and what have you the remastered version that you get like a new fucking outfit and you have to pay like $20 for it. Yes, that's stupid and clearly just a money grab. Unfortunately, that's becoming the case more and more. So I do tend to roll my eyes at it more often than not. But there are some cases of like a remastered game coming out and it being, I mean, mind blowing. They did that with Halo, for instance, and the change in quality and graphics was just incredible. Right. But yeah. they waited a long ass time to do that is the difference. They waited like 10 years to put out the remastered version. So I think that the longer there is between the original and remastered, usually the more worth it it is. If you put out a remastered version six months later, a year later, I'm probably going to scoff at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, I played the remastered crash bandicoot trilogy and mm. that was really well done right so it had the it was like a double whammy because it was like remastered and it was super cool but it was also a nostalgia trip for me right um i probably wouldn't have played those games again in their original like blocky looking format um and i think 
They're also getting ready to remaster Spyro, which I'm pretty excited for because that was also my jam when I was a kid. I have some feelings on this question because Nintendo's been a little guilty of this recently um, with their Nintendo Switch. They didn't remaster per se, but they re-released Mario Kart 8. It was originally for the Wii U. uh, Now it's for the Switch. Like, I'm okay with that because I want to continue playing it on the Switch, but it's also like, eh, why not just like make a new game or add a lot more to the deluxe edition that's only available on Switch? They're re-releasing a, a game called Captain Toad this spring. Uh, really? It was on the Wii U. Now it's going to be on um, Switch. I'm actually excited for that one because I never bought it on the Wii U. But it's like, you know, stop doing these remasters. Stop like, like they also announced they're bringing Luigi's Mansion to the 3DS that originally came out for GameCube. Like, what the fuck? Why waste your time with that? Spend time making new games, Nintendo. So, uh, and like on the other hand, okay, they made Zelda and it's amazing. They made Mario Odyssey, which is amazing. But like, stop with these rehashings altogether. Yeah. <sighs> you okay, Andrew? No, not really, not really. Little. I was just trying to think of other examples, but th- they've done it quite a few times now. And that that said, there is something to be said for uh, playing classic games on a new system, especially the Switch when it's portable, like. Being able to bring Mario Kart 8 wherever I want? Fuck yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Nintendo redid a lot of Zelda games. And right. some of them some of them looked really good, but then they redid um, Twilight Princess. And I was like, that didn't really need it. I can't <laughs> tell a difference. That was extra. At, at Wii U's launch, they had the Wind Waker HD. Right. <sighs> that one looked uh, pretty good, that, though. Yeah. No, you got to say no. We're all praying that Super Smash Bros. isn't a port of the Wii U one. They announced they're doing Super Smash Bros. for Switch, which is fantastic. But don't bring over the Wii U one. Give us an all-new one, please, and thank you. If it's done well, it goes well. But otherwise, it's just just for more money. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, before we close today's episode, I wanted to talk about our undies. Specifically, me undies. We here at the show have been wearing them for the last several weeks, and our asses still literally feel like they're floating on cloud nine. Elisa, how are your bits? Oh, they're they're soft and they're comfortable. And I think I've said this before on the show, but honest to God, I was using me undies like way before any of this, and I've always I've always loved them. I they give you no panty lines. They're incredibly comfortable. And it's really hard once you wear them to wear anything else because everything else starts to just feel like really itchy and and rough. So if you haven't tried them, at least give them a shot. Yes. Apart from soft angel kisses to the crotch, MeUndies has cool new patterns and prints every single week. And they're offering an exclusive deal for first-time purchasers where you'll get 20% off plus free shipping. And stratospheric support for your ass. Right. Our butts have never felt better, but you have to go to meundies.com slash M-I-L-L to get your 20% off plus free shipping. That's meundies.com slash M-I-L-L. Then write to the show and let us know how things are going down there. Or don't. Either way, you're welcome. Don't send pictures. Otherwise, uh, we'll probably be shut down yeah we don't want to see like if you want to describe the cool patterns you're getting that's fine but please i don't want to see your 
your stuff. That said, if you want to feel more comfortable comfortable about yourself, do, and we'll <laughs> give you rave reviews. <laughs> and then you can tell us how you feel about fairness. This week on After Dark, we're talking about two things. First of all, in a previous After Dark, I had brought up uh, that I knew a couple who got married over FaceTime. Well, there's been an update there. They've now also been married in real life, and I'm going to recap that wedding ceremony, which I actually uh, was... Uh, live texting Laura and Elisa during because <laughs> I was having a ball. I needed to share the experience with them. So uh, we'll do that. And then what else are we talking about today, Elisa? We're going to be talking about this controversy about Sinclair Broadcasting Group being accused of spewing blatant propaganda. This has become a really big story lately, um, in part due to the viral nature of one of the clips that deadspin put out it's really it really puts the whole thing into perspective so we're going to play that clip talk a little bit about the story and play a game thanks everybody who's been listening live tonight over at patreon.com slash millennial you can pledge and help the show out by going to patreon.com slash millennial um, actually people at the friends with benefits level, that's the $2 level. will have access to this week's hashing it out. And after dark hashing it out, by the way, uh, we got into quite a bit of a discussion. It was a hefty hashing it out. It was a lot of fun. So if you don't normally listen to hashing it out, definitely listen to this one. It was, it was a ball. Yeah. It was one of those times where I was like, God damn it. This would have been great show material. Like, but it's just one of those organic things where we don't plan it. It just blossoms right before our eyes. We're just too good. We're too fucking good. <laughs> uh, I wish it was that easy every week. Can't stop, wish... won't stop. <laughs> thanks to all those. Uh, thanks to everyone who does support us over there. And thank thank you to all of our listeners for for tuning in every week. We greatly appreciate it. Zach, thanks for coming on. You were fantastic. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. You know, one of the benefits of co-hosting the show is we actually pay for your health care for a month. So you get <laughs> oh, to nice. enjoy that coming soon. We'll send your parents a check. That's yeah. I'll, Well, I'll send you the bill first just so that you know exactly how much. <laughs> yeah, li- limit uh, $20, but we'll do what we can. That's not going to cut it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Elisa. I'm Laura. And I'm Zach. Goodbye. Bye. 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 So sexy it hurts And I am too sexy for Milan